Some in the congregation today, this is their first year without your mother. Uh, for others, it's a reminder that mother's been gone for quite some time. For some, it's, it's a difficult reminder of perhaps what you did not have. For some women, the, the, the dream and the desire of being a mother and, and, and that not happening. So we know that these are difficult times. But what we always do is we look past what God has given to us in the earthly realm. And we always look to God. We look to the love of God in Christ Jesus. And you'll see that today in this, in this, in this message. You'll see the power of a mother's love coming through God and how he compares a mother's love. So if you had a, a godly mother, and, and, and many of you do today and have, and we praise God for that. But there are many who did not. And it's hard and it, it can be painful. And there can be open wounds. Know that God's love, he'll compare it. You'll see in the passage to a mother's love. And he loves you completely and unconditionally. So I pray that that goes to your heart today. And for all of our mothers, we just uh, we thank you so much for, for caring more about the Lord Jesus being, being shaped and formed in the lives of your children than anything else. So now we'd ask you to open your Bibles to the gospel according to Matthew. 20 is the chapter. 20 to 28 is the passage. The hope of a godly mother is the title. The hope of a godly mother is the title. While you're looking at that, uh, there were two mothers who were spending some time together. They both had sons, and both were in high school. And those are quite difficult years, mothers, you know, with high school sons, if you've had them, and those who haven't, your day's coming. But they would ask, uh, you know, how are you doing in raising your child? And mother number one said, what do you do in the morning to get your sleep? I know your son is as difficult as mine to get him out of bed in the morning. So what do you do to get your sleepyhead son up in the morning? And the second mother said to him, oh, it's real simple. I just simply bring the cat in. I put the cat on the bed. And the first mother thought for a moment, and she said, how in the world does that help? And the second mother said, oh, the dog's already there. <laughs> the hope of a godly mother. Matthew 20, 20 to 28. Hear now the word of God. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but... To sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And may God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant and fallible word. Pray with me, won't you? Father, we thank you for this day, the Lord's day, and yet the day that we pause to honor mothers. And we thank you for them, the mother's love. We ask, Lord, that you would meet us in our deepest place of need today. Make it a word of salvation for the unsaved, whether in this sanctuary or by way of the Internet now as we live stream. Father, we ask that you would make it a word of comfort for those in storm winds. 
and a word of rest for the tired, weary, and heavy laden. Give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts that beat for nothing smaller than the Lord Jesus Christ. Come, now fount of every blessing. Unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus in him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Okay, three headings, very simply. Three headings. Number one, what was her posture? Under the hope of a godly mother, she had a posture that was instructive. Number two, she had a plea. What was her plea? And finally, number three, what was her pain? The pain was significant, and it comes to all godly mothers, to be sure. But quick point of interest before we launch out, and hopefully this will minister to every heart, because we have all hearts today. Every heart's come in carrying a burden. There's all sorts of things that that we don't know that only God knows. But I'm going to give you two categories of mothers, and this speaks to every woman. Ready? There are biological mothers and grandmothers. We're going to see this in the passage in 2 Timothy 1.5. Paul speaks to this. So these are biological mothers and grandmothers, and we praise God for this. I am reminded, Paul said, of your sincere faith, speaking about Timothy's faith, which first lived, here's the key, where did his faith live? In his grandmother Lois and then in his mother Eunice. here's, here's, Here's the covenant community passing on the truths of the scriptures from grandmother to mother to son. And I am persuaded now lives also in you. Think about that, mothers. There's the goal, that the faith that you have has been passed along. It becomes your child's faith. They can't have yours. It must be their own, so the faith has to live in them. But that's your goal. But there's another category of mother that all of you should be. Just like there's a category of men that all men should be. This is called the biblical mother. Ready for this? Romans 16, 13. Notice these words from the the Apostle Paul. Greet Rufus. This is his closing. Chosen in the Lord and his mother who has been a mother to me too. Mothers, mothers, who have you been a mother to? Beyond your own children. This woman, arguably, listen to this. The mother of Rufus was a biblical mom to arguably the most influential convert in church history. And Paul acknowledges her and says, greet her for me because she was a mother to me. She ministered to my heart. She drew me near to Christ. That's a power. So every woman is to be a biblical mother, not just to your own but to those that God brings into your lives. And for men, the same is true for all of us. We are to be biblical fathers, regardless of our own children. God brings many in our lives that we are to impact for the kingdom. So I pray that that blesses your heart today, regardless of where this finds you. You ready now? We're going to head out into some deep water and let our nets down for a catch. Number one, what was her posture? A lot can be said about posture in Scripture. Let's take a look. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. Now, a couple things to know. These are grown men. So, mothers, when is your job done? Say never. Oh, boy, never, to be sure. That's a good thing. You mother for life. You father for life. It never goes away. But it changes. The roles change a little bit and, 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 and the way that you impact. But notice this mother's posture. 
If you're visiting, we don't use the original language much unless there's a reason that something is instructive. So we'll do that here. It's important that you see what this really means in the Greek. Proskinesis is the Greek word which means bowing and kneeling. The, the passage told you that, but it's deeper. It's prostrating. You know what that means to just lie face down in the dust, if you will, before a person of higher rank. Notice that. Now, now listen to me carefully. Did the... Did the mother of James and John know who she was addressing? Yes, she did. In fact, I'm convinced she knew more about Jesus than they did. And so she comes with this posture of abject humility and falls in the dust before him. Not Psalm 95.6. Take a look. Come, let us bow down and worship. That's what we're doing here today. Doesn't necessarily mean that you're face down on the ground or you're on your knees, but the posture. We're going to look at the inside and the heart in a moment. Let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord and our Maker. It's also good to kneel. It's also good to be prostrate. But there's a deeper message here that this passage is teaching us about this mother's heart. Notice, the posture of her body demonstrated the passion of her heart. Her heart was beating for the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're going to see why in just a moment. So this woman's posture was critical that we see this in the passage. She knows who Jesus is. She's been part of the team, if you will. She's been walking with them and ministering at some level with them. She's following Jesus, and she's around where her sons are, and he's, she has seen what he's done. She has listened to his messages. She knows. She knows who he is. There's no doubt in her mind that she is addressing the incarnate God himself. No doubt in her mind, nor should there be any in ours in this passage. Okay? The the posture of her body demonstrates the passion of her heart. Number two, what was her plea? Let's take a look at her plea. Notice that she doesn't say anything until she's addressed. It's another indication. In the ancient world, there was a system of, of... and, and in cultures today, honor-shame cultures today, which we no longer have in this country, there is no such thing as honor and shame here anymore in general. But there are still cultures that have that. There are times to speak and times to be silent, times to rise and times to sit. And they knew those times. She knew how to address her superior. She knew how to address even more deeply her God. So she comes before Jesus and says nothing. But she demonstrates a heart that is beating for him. Okay? That's, that's the first key. And so he speaks. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Oh, my. Okay, so let's get, we have to get inside the story. I've got to get into the narrative. What are, what are people thinking now in the inner circle? What did they just hear and what are they thinking? Go to Matthew 20, 24. When the ten heard this, how did they feel? They were enthusiastic and they received it with great joy? No. They were indignant. They were not happy at this woman's request. Remember back in chapter 18, it talks about, you know, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And and what does the kingdom tell us about greatness? Greatness isn't found in your position, not in your profits, not in your prestige or your power. What is greatness? Founded in the kingdom of God. Service. 
What what does God say to Pharaoh through Moses? Let my people go that they may what? Serve me. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Servants. This church is filled with them. Some you'll never see. Most you'll never know. Always behind the scenes. All that had to go into today to prepare for today. All that goes into everything that goes on in this church. There are servants everywhere. Those are the greatest in the kingdom. Those who are serving for what purpose? To glorify God. To expand his kingdom and not their own. So the ten now, they're, they're, they're angry. They're upset. So listen to this. Don't miss this. Before we condemn, let us first commend. Shall we? There should be no condemnation here. This is a, a commendation for this woman's heart. You ready? 3 John 1, 4. You know this passage probably by heart. All mothers and fathers should know this for sure. It should be a verse committed to memory. This was clearly on her heart before it was in Scripture. Remember, there were no, no New Testament Scriptures written yet. But she had this on her heart that God wrote before it was written down by John. Ready? I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Mothers, what is your greatest joy? You know, I get to speak to families all the time, mothers and fathers all the time. What's your greatest joy? At this time of the year, getting ready, kids are heading off. What's the greatest joy? For some parents, it's a great joy. I I want them to go to a good school, get a good education, hopefully marry well, have a a good job and and get a nice place and and a white picket fence, maybe two cats in the yard. Life used to be so hard. Some of you are old enough to remember that song, but don't sing it. I'm definitely old enough. Is that the goal? Those are good goals. Those are great goals. We all want those things for our children. But what is, what's, what's the greater joy goal? Let's say they had all of that and they weren't walking in the truth. Would that be okay? Of course not. That'd be a horrible thing. That'd be the worst possible thing. So what's, what's the greatest joy goal for parents? That you're walking in the truth. Here we are, four years... Listen, let me, let me make a couple... Just give you brief illustration comments. You can do everything right and have everything turn out wrong. And you can do everything wrong and have everything turn out right. I did a lot of wrong. I did a lot to hurt the hearts of my children. And, and, and in God's grace, working through growing as a man of God, working through counseling, working through the scriptures and with good men who've come alongside of me, we prayed. We prayed hard for our children. And four years later, Brock is back at the church and he's serving. That's not me. That's God's grace. Alive in a family where a father messed it up more than he got it right. But my, my no greater joy was that my children would walk with the Lord. And I had to learn how to walk myself with the Lord. I remember early on as a parent, we would demand from our children what we ourselves could not give to God and be angry when we didn't receive it. So the goal is that, that, our, that our children walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only goal that truly matters. All the other things are great, and God is gracious to give those things to us. But what does it matter if they're not walking with God? So notice what her goal is. Ready? 
This is why she had two no greater joy goals. One, that they would be secure in the kingdom. Is, not, is, is that not your greatest goal? That you know, listen, you send your children off to college. Do you send them off with your faith? That's a train wreck. It's, a tra- it's going to be a train wreck anyway, right? right? They're going to do things they ought not to do, and you're going to go, I don't even believe this. Believe it. 30 years I've been sending kids off to college. That's life. But you want them secure in the kingdom. Why? Their faith has to be real. If their faith isn't real with Jesus, then there's, there's no hope for them. If all they've been doing is coming on Sunday because you've been dragging them and going to some Bible studies, and no hope at all. Our greatest goal was that Jesus was real to Brock, and we knew he'd mess it up. We knew that there'd be difficult times, but it, Jesus had to be real, and he was, and he's back. So they have to be secure in the kingdom. Then the next thing, seated next to the king. Don't you want him next to the king? I want him as close as I can get to Jesus and as far away from me as possible. And that's just the truth. I want him to see Jesus. I want him to see Jesus in me, but they're going to see such a distorted picture at times. So what was her goal? Secure in the kingdom and seated next to the king. Was there anything wrong with that? Of course not. That's the heart of a godly mother. That should be the goal of every godly mother here. Secure in the kingdom and seated next to Christ. Get close to Jesus. Spend time in the word. Spend time in prayer. Get to the service. Get involved in Christian organizations on the campus. Do everything you can to get next to Jesus. Because that's the place where you will find meaning and purpose and significance in life and no other place. That's the only place where you will begin to rediscover your humanity that was lost in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve denied their humanity when they turned away from God. So Jesus comes and raises you from death to life, and then what? He wants to reconnect you to your humanity. What makes you human? You're an image bearer of the Most High God. It's getting back connected vertically with God, loving God, serving God. Living for God's glory and then connecting horizontally with all others that God brings into your life. Two goals. Secure in the kingdom and seated next to the king. What was the primary focus? They were advancing God's kingdom, not their own. Listen, parents, there'll be times they'll advance their own kingdom just like we do. But what does the heart primarily beat for? It beats for the Lord Jesus Christ because that relationship has been formed in them. And it is real. Jesus is real to our kids. They have come to Christ. Not just because my mom and dad are godly, but I now have a living, personal relationship with the Lord. He is mine. He has come into my life. He sits on the throne of my life. My heart beats for Him. That gives us the greatest possibility of the least amount of fallout when they go. And some parents, especially the new ones who send them off, they're so surprised. No, they are. They go, I had no idea. It's just the way it is. I used to say to my Kim, stop, not my children. And Katie would be sitting there on the side going like this. <laughs> Come on, Dad. 
Poppy, Poppy. I got it on the phone, I know. Poppy. So what do we hope for? The least amount of fallout. And the least comes when they are strengthened most in their relationship with Jesus. Because why? Jesus is going to love them unconditionally and forgive them completely. And how are they ever going to mortify sin if they don't know it's already been mortified at the cross? How are they possibly going to live a life that is pleasing and acceptable to the Lord if they don't know already Jesus has already won that for them? And that they know that they won't do it in their own strength. Yet our prayer is that they would be willing to do what? Say yes to the things they should say yes to and no to the things they should say no to. Okay? Hope of a godly mother. Get them next to Jesus. Now, when you do that, what's, what's the result? There should be some, some significant pain. All those who hope to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. Okay, remember, what was it said about Mother Mary when she brought the baby? And she brought in Simeon. Remember Simeon? Simeon brought him to the temple to be dedicated. What did Simeon say? This child here, the rising and the falling of many, 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 many hearts. But a sword will pierce your soul too, mother. A sword will pierce your soul. A sword pierces the soul of godly mothers when their children draw near to Jesus. Don't be afraid of that. Because Christ is in the middle of that. He's in the middle of that pain. Okay, you ready? Matthew 20, 22 to 23. Let's take a look. You don't, Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Jesus said, can you drink the cup? We'll look at that in a moment, that I'm going to drink. And of course, what do they say? Yes, of course, we can. Jesus said, you will drink from my cup. Let me pause. Let me just be, well, let me finish it, and then I'll I'll do it. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. They belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. What does the cup equal? The cup equals the wrath and the judgment of God, okay? So let's be clear. Let's be clear on what Jesus is saying. I want to be very careful, because some people in the church have this messed up. Look at that. Be very clear. Are you willing to drink my cup? It's, it's a light cup. So say that in your heart. It's a light cup. It's not the same cup. There's only one person who drank the judgment and wrath of God. Who is that? Jesus. But how is the cup like? How is the, that's what he's saying. He's not saying you're going to drink from the same exact cup. Only I drink from that. Only one went to the cross. But you're going to drink a cup of what? The wrath and judgment, not of God, but of who? People. People who are angry with you. Who don't love your God. Who hate your God. Who see your Christianity as narrow bigoted and intolerant that's why we teach our kids before they go to the college or they go to the academy or they go off into life what do we teach them the answer to a single question what question do they need to answer why is christianity true if you can't answer that question you don't have a seat at the table because you're going to go to a campus where you're going to sit next to a buddhist and a hindu and a secular humanist and a jew and all sorts of other things in between what makes your religious worldview any different than theirs it is not uncommon for me to hear from college students in our co- cross you ministry. Pa- Pastor, many of them call me coach from all the days for training. Coach, I, I, I know I'm supposed to go and I'm supposed to evangelize. I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to convert these people. I'm supposed to tell them about Jesus. But frankly, I got a Buddhist and a Hindu and a Jew and a secular humanist friend that they're nicer and kinder than most people I've ever met in the church. Most people in the church are angry, narrow-minded and bigoted. I don't even begin to speak to them. They're right. We've missed it. We've missed the grace and the mercy and the love of God in Christ Jesus trying to defend our position. What did Francis Schaeffer say the greatest apologetic in the world is? Love. 
Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love them. Love them. Show them the love of God in Christ Jesus. Show them the love first before you speak it. Show them the love. So we teach our kids, why is Christianity true? If it's not true, don't follow it. But if it's true, then it makes all the difference in the world. And then you have the opportunity intellectually. It's not a blind leap of faith. It's an intellectual faith. That's why we teach apologetically here. How do you defend your faith? How do you speak into other worldviews? And I've said this time and time again. Only when your religious worldview connects to Jesus, only when the plot lines of your life are connected to Christ, will your life have a happy ending. It's the goal of every life, right? To live happily ever after. There's only one way for that to take place. When the plot lines of your life are in Christ. Okay? So we're clear. Just take a look. Acts 12. Did, did this mother... The Bible doesn't tell us. We don't know how long she was alive. But it certainly is not beyond reason to think that she was there. Certainly when, when James was, was put to death. You ready for this? Acts 12, 1 to 2. She's probably there. So did she have pain? Well... It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, that, those are the sons of, of, of Zebedee, right? You see that? That's the mother's sons. He was put to death with the sword. So this is the first of the apostles that's martyred in the scripture. It's the only one that we know that was martyred. We have church history that tells us the rest. But what about, what about John? So did, did she have pain? Did they drink the cup that Jesus promised? They didn't drink the cup of God's wrath and judgment, but they drank the cup of the wrath and judgment of what? People. That's the world that we live in. And remember, with all of the other religious worldviews, Christianity is the only one that takes the hit. They say you're narrow and, 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 and you're exclusive. So is the Buddhist. So is the Hindu. So is the Jew. All roads don't lead, lead, lead to heaven. They all have an exclusive way to get there. You just, you just have been told something that isn't true, a myth. You Christians are just narrow-minded. Every religious rule is narrow-minded. Why is there Buddhism? Kadama Buddha was a Hindu. He was a Hindu, and he renounced the faith of his fathers and founded Buddhism. Why? He didn't believe Hinduism was correct. So every religious worldview is narrow. Yours is the only one that takes the hit. That's why we have to train our kids to be able to understand how to speak truth in love based on what they believe. And you can't say, when you're little like this, the little children up front playing and coloring, look at them, Kate and Claire and Jackie. At night, you know what you can say? You say this with your parents. Jesus loves me, this I know. Everyone, for the Bible tells me so. That's fine today. But Michael, don't do that at Northwestern. Michael, don't do that. You do it in your heart. But when you get on the campus, don't say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Tell them why you know Jesus loves you. Why you believe that there's enough historical evidence that a dead man got up and walked. Tell them why. With love and compassion. Remember the apologetic, right? Always be ready to give an answer for those who ask for the reason for the hope that is in you. But don't forget the end of it. I used to forget that. When I was a brand new convert, I used to bang the Bible over people's heads. 
I wish I could go back and tell everybody I'm sorry. What an idiot I was. Can't you see this truth? Bam! How do, don't you know Jesus loves you? Bam! I was so unloving. It says with gentleness and respect. I didn't see that in my scripture. Oh, maybe I did, but I had no interest in that. Just fight him into the kid. Kim says, you always got your hands up. I, now I do in praise. Now I do in praise. Not like this anymore. I use, I, only when we're training, but in praise. Why is it true? You know why. You have answers. John. What did John, what did he deal with? If you look in Acts chapter 5, you'll see that all the disciples were persecuted. But let me give you John in Revelation. You ready? I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering in the kingdom. So he's a companion in suffering in the kingdom of God. You see that? John makes it clear. I'm suffering. I'm in the kingdom with you. And patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Now, we can also look for church tradition. We can look for, for church history outside of Scripture. And when we have enough cross-references, we can say, okay, some of this really seems to make sense. There's a tradition that tells us that John... John, one of the sons of thunder, was thrown into a vat of boiling oil. You just think of him as exiled on the Isle of Patmos. And you think, eh, that's not that bad, right? Eating some, some, I don't know, fruits and hanging out and writing. No, 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 no. No, he was persecuted his entire life. Then he's exiled and he's by himself, but he's thrown in a vat. Church historian, apologist, and Christian author, Tertullian, about 155 A.D. to 240, notice what he says. This is is church history. It is said, don't miss this, it is said of John, Tertullian, instead of being destroyed, he was sensibly refreshed. In a vat of boiling oil. How is that possible? You say that doesn't make sense. Do you believe the scriptures? That one's not in scripture. But what about those three Jewish lads who were thrown into the fiery furnace? Were they sensibly refreshed? Yes, they were. Why? There was a fourth one in the fire. Who went in there with them? Jesus. Who was in the boiling vat of oil with John? Jesus. Who's in the middle of your pain right now? Jesus. That's the whole point of understanding the power of what it is that you believe. You have the only religious worldview where your God died for you. He didn't, you have the only religious worldview that's rooted in grace. You know what the center of the Bible is? Edmund Clowney would say the center of the Bible comes out of Jonah. Jonah chapter 2. Salvation is of the Lord. Everybody say, salvation is of the That's the center of the Bible. Salvation is of God's grace. It's the only religious worldview that's rooted in grace. You don't work your way to God. God worked his way to you. And he's brought you into this grace relationship that had nothing to do with you. And he keeps you in it. And it has nothing to do with you staying in it. And only by knowing that truth are you willing to fight against sin. That chases you down late at night when you're all alone. Don't you forget that. You have to know that it's already been nailed to a cross. Or you cannot beat it. Okay? So, she had pain. She had this beautiful posture. She had a wonderful plea. Godly mothers, you want your children secure and seated next to Jesus. But there's pain. 
R.C. Sproul would say this in class. This is, this is important. Don't miss this. Tommy, when you go out and preach, if you're not getting any guff, what is guff? Whatever guff is. If you're not getting any guff from people and you're preaching, one of two things has taken place. Number one, you're not preaching the whole counsel of God. Or number two, they don't understand what you're saying. You're not out there trying to make people angry, but they are angry if you preach the truth in love. And then that's why we have to do what? Be able to demonstrate why it's true. That's the whole point of understanding the gospel and how to evangelize. How do you evangelize? You're not evangelizing an anti-Christian culture. Forget that. You're evangelizing a post-Christian. It's the first time ever. You're evangelizing a post-Christian culture. People who are not just not Christian. They're on the run away from Christian. They know what Christianity was. They, they, so you're speaking about Christianity. Oh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm familiar with Christianity. Yeah, it's a time when the, when, 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 when the blacks had to ride on the back of the bus and, and, and they had to drink out of certain water fountains and, 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 and husbands could beat their wives at home without impunity. Be, ah, I know all about Christianity. Been there, done that, I got the T-shirt. No interest in that. You say, what kind of Christianity? No, 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 no. That's why you have to understand how to speak into this cultural context. You have the only worldview, the only one. Where all of it comes together because of what someone has done for you, not what you're doing for him. How many people in the church today think this? I obey, therefore God has to accept me. That's, that's the belief of most Christians today. If I'm obedient, God will accept me. If I'm obedient, God will bless me. If I'm obedient, then, then, then I will get God's favor. That's not how it works. God has accepted you, therefore you are now obedient. Don't miss the order. The order will mess you up. You're obedient because you're already in Christ. You've already been given the power of the resurrection. That's why you obey. So how do we close? If you are a biological mom, we congratulate you. If you are a biblical mom, we celebrate you. Out of the horrors, I'm going to give you a little story, then a final passage to close, of the Holocaust. There's a picture of a mother's love. Some of you may be familiar with the story. I know I've said it before in the past. The Rosenberg family, true family, real family. Solomon Rosenberg had a wife, two sons, and a father and a mother. And they were arrested and swept up and brought into the Nazi concentration camps. Okay? This whole family. Grandma, Grandpa, Solomon and his wife and two sons. And the Nazi concentration camps had a very simple message. You will live as long as you can work. So he knew that some of his family members weren't going to be long for life. Soon Solomon's mother and father were marched off to their death. And after they were gone, every night when they would come back from working, he would gather his family. They would be in different locations, and they would gather to pray and thank God for another day of life. And that was their goal at the end of every day. One evening, Solomon returned to the barracks, and he searched for his family, and he only found his oldest son. 
and heartbroken with tears in his eyes. He said, tell me, Josh. Tell me it's not true. He said, it's true, Papa. David, his little brother, was not strong enough. And so they came and took him. And he said, but where's your mother? Where's mom? Oh, Dad. David was crying uncontrollably. So mom ran to him, grabbed his little hand and said, I've got you. And they marched them off together. That's the love of a mother's heart. But there's another love that's even more powerful and more permanent. Isaiah 49, 14 to 16. Don't miss this, please. 14, but Zion said, this is another name for God's people. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. The people of God felt alone and they felt abandoned. Stuff is happening in their lives, stuff is going on, and they just feel like heaven is silent, God is nowhere to be found. The Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me, the Lord doesn't care about me anymore, I'm alone and abandoned. But God speaks up. In verse 15, can a mother, don't miss this, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, it's possible. Some have lived that. I will not forget you. My love is unforgettable. My love is unconditional. My love never wavers. You are never far from my heart. And then... Oh, my. Verse 16. Mrs. Rosenberg, picture her holding the little child and marching off to death. See, in verse 16, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Do you know that the Hebrew for engraved, you know what it means? A hammer and a chisel. Stay with me. Do you realize what's being said by the prophet Isaiah? In the ancient world, it was not uncommon in the slave-master relationship for the master to have his name, to have his mark inscribed upon the slave. But never was the name of the slave engraved upon the master. And Jesus said, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. He said, I want you to look at a mother's love, and then I want you to see mine. There's no comparison. Whatever and however great the love has been, mine is even deeper. Mine is even greater. And I've engraved you on the palms of my hands, and years later, they nailed Christ to a cross. John 20, 27. Thomas is not there. On the first Easter night, Thomas is not there. He says, I won't believe until I see him, until I put my fingers through the nail prints. I won't believe it until I see him. Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. See my hands that I have engraven your name upon my hands. And stop doubting and believe. But it's even deeper. Revelation 5, 6. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. 
Did you ever think that there is something in heaven that's man-made? Did you ever think of that? There is. Do you know the one thing in heaven that's man-made? The wounds on Christ. John says it looks as though it's a lamb that's been slain. He still bears the mark. Why? He still has your names engraved on his hands. And he spoke his love for you through his cracked lips as he hung on the cross. The love of a godly mother is an amazing thing to have, but there's a love that's far greater. The love of God in Christ Jesus. With every pound of that hammer on that nail, he thought of you and you and you. And at any moment, he could have stopped it all. And he refused because of you and you and you. My God, my God, why? Why have thou forsaken me? Because of you and me. With outstretched arms and nail-scarred hands, Christ has come. Will you come to Christ? Not with your good works. Not with your obedience. Not with all of your giving of time, talent, and treasure. Will you come to Christ by grace through faith? Will you come to Christ? Come today. Lay all of your doing down and come to Christ. Surrender control of your life to Christ and salvation is yours today. If you've never prayed, pray with me in just a moment. All of us who have been in Christ, pray with me the first time. Pray. You're not saved by a prayer, but we're going to pray together. Let today be a day of salvation and see your name engraved in the nail prints. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel. It is a power unto salvation. And Father, we know that there are some in the sanctuary right now, maybe, maybe some of our young kids and young people, maybe some of our students never, never have surrendered control. Never, never. Today is a day of salvation. By way of the internet, we know there are always some who are watching who have never Never found themselves in an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus. Oh, God, let them pray right now. Just pray these words in your heart. Father, I heard the truth today. I saw the gospel. I know that I'm broken and I can't fix myself. But I've heard that you engraved my name on your palms. I trust in that. I believe that to be true. I turn my life over to you, oh, God. Give me the gift of repentance and faith. And I promise you this day, if you prayed this prayer with a heart that truly beats for Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're his. And then God, I ask, give them the confident assurance that he who began a good work will one day bring it to completion. And Lord, for the rest of us, many who have walked for decades, strengthen all of us in our faith. Grow us up into Christ and remind us every single day. You engraved our names with a hammer and a chisel. The master wanted the names of his slaves on his body. For that, we are overwhelmed with thanksgiving. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Would you all stand as we continue our worship? Alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin.